the children's church. And while our children are finding their way to the door, I'd invite the rest of you to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. If you're using a pew Bible, that's on page 1043, Luke chapter 22, page 1043 in the pew Bibles. As we continue our study through the Gospel of Luke, and and today as we come through Luke, uh, we come to the story of the Last Supper, which is where we are in Luke, which of course is fitting because here we are celebrating the Lord's Supper today. So it's a a fitting time to be studying this text, Luke chapter 22. And let me read the passage. I'm going to read verses 7 to 23, which is the story of the Last Supper. Luke chapter 22, verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Well, a happy uh, Labor Day weekend to you. Uh, As you know, this is Labor Day. It's uh, that wonderful three-day week, uh, Memorial Day. Did I say Labor Day? Whatever it is. So, well, I'm glad you're at South Shore Methodist Church this morning. It's good to have you. Uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. please don't tell me it's Labor Day yet. It's Memorial Day weekend. And uh, th- that three-day weekend where, where we uh, remember uh, those who are uh, fallen in battle. You know, it's interesting. Um, I-, I didn't realize fully what Labor Day was about. Memorial Day was about. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how many of you tomorrow will be going to a cemetery to decorate a grave? And, now, wait a minute. Not only decorating a grave in a cemetery, but how many of you will be decorating a grave in a cemetery of a soldier? And not just of a soldier, but a soldier who was uh, killed in battle. Will anybody be decorating the grave of a soldier who was killed in battle? Nobody? We only had two in the first service. 
Oh, one back there. Yeah, I saw one. So there's one person here who's actually celebrating the true meaning of Memorial Day. <clears throat> Which is interesting, because I, I didn't realize what it was uh, truly about. I mean, I'm sort of a clueless American. I'm very clueless, as you can tell. And so I, I was looking it up, and Memorial Day is actually, it's not just remembering uh, those who are departed, but specifically remembering soldiers who lost their lives in battle. It was originally called Decoration Day. And the first uh, Memorial Day or Decoration Day was held in um, 1868. It was ordered by a general uh, named General Logan. And he ordered that on May 30th, uh, the graves of Union and Confederate soldiers in Arlington National Cemetery should be decorated with flowers. And so the practice caught on. And uh, pretty soon, within a few years, the northern states had adopted it as, as part of their state law to be a, a day where they would commemorate those who had died during the Civil War. And, and it was sort of a northern thing. The south, I don't know, they were still bitter or something, so they didn't really adopt it. Uh, but, but eventually it got adopted by the whole country around World War I when it uh, was broadened from just commemorating those who died in the Civil War to commemorating all American soldiers who had given their lives in the line of uh, battle. And so it eventually became sort of a national day of remembrance, and Decoration Day became Memorial Day. And then something happened along the way it was in the 1970s when uh, the Congress took that day and made it a national holiday so that federal employees, I guess that's the key, got the day off. And that is when it became the three-day weekend that we know of it today. And so uh, and I think somewhere along the way we've kind of forgotten sort of the history and what it was all about. Because most people just think of Memorial Day as, hey, it's three-day weekend, barbecue, beginning of summer, I can start wearing white now or, or whatever. You know, that rule is that I, I've, I kind of lose track of those fashion rules. Um, but we sort of lost track of the original intent of the holiday. And that happens, doesn't it, with traditions and remembrances, is we forget the original intent of those things, and we sort of go on with our lives, and, and, and we forget why it was put there in the first place. And so today we come to the Christian's Memorial Day. And our Memorial Day is, is this. It's the Lord's Supper. Or some people call it communion, or sometimes it's called the Eucharist, and I'm comfortable with any three of those terms. I, I know what they all mean, and, and they're all fine terms. They, they get at different aspects of what this table is. But this is the Christian's Memorial Day, and we celebrate it on a more regular basis than just annually. And, and it's the, one of those celebrations that unites the church. You know, Christianity has all these different branches. There's the Orthodox Church, and the Roman Catholic, and Protestant, and there's differences between them. But they all hold this in common. They celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so it's one of those things that brings Christians or should bring Christians together uh, in our worship. And when we remember that Christ died for us on the cross. And yet it's so easy to lose sight of the meaning of this, isn't it? Like all traditions and like all rituals, it's easy just to go through the motions and, oh, it's Communion Sunday again and, you know, later on we'll be having communion and the elements are being passed around and it's easy to kind of let your mind wander and be thinking about, you know, the chores you have to do today. And, but we have to be very quiet because, you know, it's the Lord's Supper. But you forget why we do it. And, and it's easy to simply go through the motions of a ritual and lose sight of its original intention and, and therefore miss the depth and, and richness of it. So here we are, uh, providentially. It is Memorial Day. It is Communion Sunday. And we are studying the Last Supper where the Lord's Supper was first instituted. So we're going back to that first Lord's Supper on that night before Jesus went to the cross. 
And my goal, my sort of mission statement for this sermon, is by the end of it, I want us to all just appreciate the richness and depth of what this service is all about, what communion is all about, so that in about you know, 25, 30 minutes from now, we'll come at this with a fresh appreciation of what Christ has done for us and what the Lord's Supper is all about. So let's look at the text. And here's how I want to kind of get at this. Uh, I'm going to read verses 7 to 13 again. And I want you to be on the lookout for a word, or actually it's a set of words. And I believe this set of words is the key that unlocks the meaning of this text. That, that if you can get these words and understand the context in which Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, it opens up a whole understanding and depth of richness to what the Eucharist is all about. So let me do this. I'm going to read verses 7 to 13. I'm going to see if you can find this word. It appears four times. Someone told me after the service, actually, Jeremy, there's two words that appear four times. So I, I was corrected there as well. I'm, having, I'm not batting well today, as you can tell. So, but, but the two words go together. So let me read it and see if you can get this key concept that just enlightens the whole text. So verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. And he replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. See the key word there? The, the Passover. Well, the other word is prepare. But that's what the guy, he's like, well, there's actually prepare. It's like, yeah, you're right. So, but it's prepare the Passover. So that's a whole other sermon, the preparation thing. So I'm talking about the Passover part. It's a Passover celebration. So when Jesus and the disciples were first gathering, they weren't gathering to celebrate the Eucharist. Jesus instituted that. They were gathering to celebrate the Jewish Passover. And so that's significant, that there at the Passover, that that's where Jesus brought about the Lord's Supper. So in order to understand the Lord's Supper, you really have to understand what the Passover was all about. Because the Passover is like the vine from which the Lord's Supper and Communion flowers and grows. The two are organically connected. And so to really get the one, you have to go back and understand the other. So what is Passover? Well, Passover is an annual Jewish holiday that commemorates and memorializes the central saving act of God on behalf of the people of Israel, which is when he brought them out of slavery in Egypt. It's an annual uh, celebration of that. It's really the most important, probably, of Jewish holidays. You know, when you think of Jewish holidays, sometimes we have Hanukkah that's sort of there because Christmas is a big American holiday, and people say, well, there's Hanukkah too. But, you know, Hanukkah is really not that big of a Jewish holiday compared to Passover. I mean, Passover is, is the holiday. It's the, it, you know, Passover is to Jews what the 4th of July is to Americans. It's the day we celebrate when we were born and came into being as a nation. Uh, Passover is to Jewish folks the what uh, an anniversary is to a married couple. It's the day when it came into existence and was born. And so this is such a critical day. And it is on that day when, when Jews celebrate the, the birth of their nation through the Exodus that Jesus 
instituted the Passover, or rather the Lord's Supper. So now that means to really understand the Passover, we have to go back and understand the Exodus where the whole Passover started. So we're kind of going backwards here. To understand the Lord's Supper, you really need to understand the Passover celebration. And to understand the Passover celebration, you really got to understand why that celebration started in the first place. So that's what I want to do. I want to go back to the very beginning, and then we'll work our way forward and come up to the Lord's Supper. So let's uh, put a finger or a bookmark or whatever in Luke 22. And I want us to turn back to the first Passover. It's in Exodus chapter 12. Second book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, chapter 12, is on page 65. And I want to read the story of the first Passover and then connect it to the Passover celebration and then use that to explain the Lord's Supper because they're all organically connected. So as you turn back to Exodus 12, we are turning back in time 3,500 years. We're going halfway around the world. We're now in Egypt. We're no longer in America. And the situation is that the descendants of Abraham have been in bondage in Egypt for 400 years. They've been slaves. They've been building the great uh, pyramids and you know, buildings of Egypt. They've been enslaved by the pharaohs there. And they cry out to God for God to rescue them and deliver them. And God sends a deliverer named Moses. And Moses goes to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he says the famous lines, The Lord says, Let my people go. And Pharaoh, of course, says no. And so God begins to send plagues of judgment upon Egypt, plague after plague. And Pharaoh will not break. He will not give in. His heart is hard. And so finally, we come to the last plague, the tenth plague, which is the worst one of all. That's where God is going to go through Egypt and kill every firstborn in Egypt. Firstborn child, firstborn animal. And he's going to do it throughout Egypt. But he wants to protect the Israelites and so it says in chapter 12, verse 1, this is where we pick up the text. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. Uh, skip down to verse 5. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. They are then to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of their houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roasted over the fire, heads, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If someone's left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you, you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So why are they dressed like that? Why, why do they eat sort of, you know, all ready to go? Well, it's because they have to be ready to go. The next day is going to be their deliverance from Egypt. They're going to go forth. It's sort of like, you know, when you're scarfing down food in the airport, and you have your, your ticket, and you're in the terminal, and you have your bags, and you're hungry, so you're just... You know, grabbing a quick bite and you're watching the, you know, the airline, checking your time. You don't want to miss your plane. The same thing. They're eating. They're ready to go. They're all packed up because God is going to save them and rescue them from slavery in Egypt. So verse 12, here's what's going to happen. On that same night, when you put the blood of the, the lamb over the doorpost and have this meal, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn 
both men and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. Here we go, verse 13. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So as God brings this judgment upon an idolatrous people who have rejected His laws, when He brings His judgment on Egypt, if He sees a house where that blood of the Lamb has been spread, He will pass over the house and spare it. And and so that blood, in a sense, is a substitutionary sacrifice. Instead of a child or an animal inside the house dying, instead the Lamb died in its place. And so the blood of sacrifice is a substitution that saves those who are inside. Now this isn't just supposed to happen once and be forgotten. Because look at verse 14. There's a final verse. He goes on to say, This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. A lasting ordinance. And so, for 3,500 years, give or take, since the Exodus Jewish folk have been celebrating the Passover year after year and remembering what God did when He saved Moses and the Israelites out of Egypt and brought them to safety. It's a commemoration and a memorial of that event. Um, And so the the whole Passover meal, if you're eating a Passover meal with a Jewish family, it's really, the whole thing is intended to bring you back to that original Passover celebration. Has, has anyone here, by the way, ever been to a Jewish Passover Seder, taken part in one, or maybe a reenactment? Okay, some of you have. I've been to, to a reenactment once. It's very interesting. And, you know, the Jewish Passover, it's not like, like, hey, let's get some pizza and, you know, some, some Coke, and we'll just sort of remember what Moses did way back then. You know, it's very ritualized. It's very structured. The whole thing takes place in an orderly way because it's a, it's a memorial. It's a very almost liturgical sort of experience. All of the foods that are eaten during the Passover so, uh, symbolize different aspects of that escape from slavery. So there's, of course, lamb is eaten to memorialize the Passover lamb. And there's the unleavened bread, the matzah bread, you know, the kind of crackery stuff. That's eaten during the Passover. And that reminds them that when they left Egypt, they left in a hurry because God's deliverance came fast. And so the Passover uh, bread is the unleavened bread. Uh, There's this kind of sticky, it's like a fruit-nut sort of mixture. It's called caroset. And it's it's supposed to symbolize the mortar that was used to build the bricks when they were slaves in Egypt. So there's all these symbolic foods that are transporting the people around the table to help them think as if they were back in that first generation. It, it connects them in solidarity with those who were originally released from slavery by God's power. Uh, there are four cups of wine drunk during the meal. And yes, it's watered down wine. So you're not having four actual glasses of wine. You're having a little bit. But, but each of those cups has a symbolic meaning. Each, uh, each of the cups symbolizes a different thing, a different aspect of the exodus. And of course, the all-important part of that meal is when the son or one of the children says to the father at the table, this ritual thing that they do, they say, Father, why is this night different than all other nights? That's the question. And then that launches the father into a retelling of the story that I just told you. And they go over that story. So it's a beautiful thing. And, And the whole family does this together. And it connects them as 
as, the, as Jewish people to what God did for the original Israelites when he brought them out of slavery in Egypt. It, it's an amazing kind of thing that, that connects people deep into the past and shapes their identity today. And it was at that Passover meal, that moment where they were celebrating the very core of their identity as the people of God, it was at that meal that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. Now think about that. This wasn't coincidental. This was intentional. And so the Lord's Supper has its roots and meanings in all of the richness of the Jewish Passover. And so what specifically then is it? I mean, maybe we can sort of draw this out. In what ways then does the Lord's Supper connect to the Jewish Passover? And, and how are they related to each other? How does the one inform the other? And man, I wish I had more time. You know, when I was sick of this, I, was, I seriously was contemplating turning this into like three sermons. Because I was like, oh, there's so much here. We're going too fast through Luke. We have to slow down. And we need to not rush this process, people. But, but I was like, I've got to stay on schedule. I have to finish Luke by Labor Day. So that's maybe I was thinking of Labor Day. I, uh, we need to finish by Labor Day. So let me just suggest to you, and this is, this is a, an, an overview. There's so much more we could get into, all the connections between Passover and the Lord's Supper. But let me just suggest to you three of the main ways, the, the big high points, of how the Passover informs the Lord's Supper so that we understand what it is that we're doing here when we... Uh, observe this ritual. And the three ways, you could think of them on a timeline. The first one has to do with the past. The second one has to do with the present. And the third way these two are connected has to do with the future. And so let's look at these in turn. And the first one, let's look at the past one. Uh, First of all is this, that both the, the Jewish Passover and the Christian Eucharist celebrate and memorialize the central saving act of God on behalf of His people. And so the Passover celebrates the exodus from Egypt and the Lord's Supper celebrates the death of Christ on the cross for our sins. And so both of them cause us to think about and transport us to what God did in order to make us His people. In the first case, it was to bring them out of Egypt and now it's to bring us out of the Egypt of our sins to save us in a second exodus through the blood of Christ. And so Jesus says, go back to Luke chapter 22 if you would. Let's turn back to our main text now. Luke chapter 22, verse 19. And He took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, This is My body given for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Now, when Jesus says, this is my body, he doesn't mean it was literally transformed into his body. All right? it, it's not literally the body and blood of Christ. This is a symbolic meal. They would have understood that because all of the different foods on the table symbolize different things. And then he says, do this in remembrance of me. It's a memorial kind of thing. So this is not transubstantiated. That's not a biblical doctrine. But it, it's a memorial thing. The bread symbolizes his body. And verse 20, in the same way after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And so the bread and the cup, those simple things, matzah bread, I mean, what's more simple than matzah bread? It doesn't even have leaven in it. It's just like a cracker. 
And grape juice or wine, I mean, it's the most basic, in those days, staple kind of drink. And yet, in those simple elements, we are to be transported back to that initial moment. And just as the, the, the Jewish people, as they celebrate the Passover, go back to Egypt, so as Christians, when we take those elements, we're supposedly transported back. We have to use our imaginations and our minds. And we go back to Jerusalem. And we go back to Mount Calvary. And we go to the foot of the cross. And so as Christians, when we take the Lord's Supper, we, it's like we're standing at the foot of the cross again. And we're remembering not only that Jesus died, but that He died for me. So it has to be personalized and internalized. Notice what Jesus says again. He says, this is my body which is given for you. And he said, this is the, the new cup, is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. And so as Christians, we stand at the foot of the cross and we remember the blood that was shed for us. In a sense, it, like, it like takes you back to when you first became a Christian. You know when you first became a Christian, when you realized, I am a sinner. And I, I cannot be saved by my good works. I am under the judgment of God, but then you saw the cross in your heart and you said, Jesus died to save me even though I can't save myself. And you put your faith in Christ and you're saved. And it's like that communion brings us back to the moment of our salvation. You know, it's like my, uh, my, my wedding album at home. Uh, there's a commemoration. Every anniversary, one of the traditions my wife and I have, we break out the old wedding album, right? You know, it's been sitting there probably since we looked at it last year on our anniversary. And we sit down with the kids and we open up the book and we start looking at the pictures. And it takes you back. You remember sights and sounds and people. You know, we got married right here in this church is where my wife and I got married. I was standing about right there, okay? And she was standing right about here and the minister was here. And this is where we got married, right here in this spot. And we have pictures of us up here and we have pictures of us walking down the aisle. And, you know, there's this, this great one of me. I looked really good, actually. I was kind of, you know, walking along. And I looked thinner. I don't know. But um, we're sort of leaving, you know. The, and we look at those pictures and they bring us back. And, and it brings back all those feelings and all of those thoughts and the commitments that were made. And that's what the Lord's Supper should be for us as Christians. It's a commemoration where we, we go back and we remember Christ's death on the cross 2,000 years ago and the time when we appropriated that for ourselves 10 years ago or 5 years ago or 1 year ago, whenever it was that we became true Christians, where we personally embraced Christ by faith. Um, and so I think part of what that also means is that when we go into the Lord's Supper, it should be a time of personal reflection and self-examination. Part of that, you know, it's a somber time. It's really quiet. And, and the point of the quietness is not just to rest, but it's to focus our minds on the cross and to say to Jesus, Jesus, you died for me, and I know I have not lived fully in a way worthy of your death for me. And so, Jesus, purify me. It's a time to confess our sins and examine our hearts. You know, some of us, we're busy, we're full of things, we're going on doing business and trips and vacations and school. And, you know, we can actually, even as Christians, go a long time without really connecting with the Lord. We can get so busy that we don't have time for God. And so at least we gather here at communion to stop and to focus 
on the Lord and to ask Him to search our hearts. We do that as a community. And so that's the, the first thing that communion is. It is a, a commemoration of something past that where Christ died and we were saved and so we personalize it as well. Um, and by the way, if I could just go off on a little tangent here uh, just for a second. One of the questions I'm sometimes asked about communion is when should children have communion? When should kids take part in this? And uh, I think this passage is helpful. I, I think one of the answers is, well, first of all, your, your kids should really be Christians. You should make sure that they really know the Lord and, and really trust Him as their Savior personally. And you know, being a Christian isn't produced by sending a kid to a series of classes. By going to, through Sunday school or some religious education, you don't spit them out the other side and then all at the same age on the same day, they're Christians and ready to have communion. You know, being a Christian is something that has to be personally adopted. It has to be a personal step of faith. And for some people, yeah, that is when they're a little kid. Some people, it doesn't happen until they're 30. But whenever that is, it, there has to be a personal embracing of the gospel. So I'd say the first thing is make sure your kids are Christians. And don't assume just because they were raised in your home that they're Christians. I don't assume that because my kids are pastor's kids that they're Christians. It doesn't magically make them followers of Christ. I'm praying for them and I'm preaching the gospel to them and hoping that God will move in their hearts. And so that's the first thing. Make sure they're Christian. Second of all, make sure that they understand what communion is. Even if you think they, are, they may be Christians, you know, ask them. It's like, well, why do you want to take communion? And, well, do you know what it means? And have them explain it to you. Don't help them. Just let them talk to you. And if they can't articulate it, then I'll tell you what. Be a parent. Exercise some authority. And when the plate comes around, don't let your kids take it. You know, why should we degrade communion just because Johnny feels a little upset that he's not getting a snack? It's not snack time. You know, if your kids need a snack, you have my permission, bring some goldfish to church, all right? Let them eat, whatever. I know kids need food. I have kids and they need food all the time. They're constantly hungry. This is not snack time. And maybe it's good if you tell your kids, no, you can't have any. And they say, why? You say, well, you don't know what it means. Well, what does it mean? Well, let's talk about that. In other words, use this tool as a way of preaching the gospel to your children so that they, they really know what it means. Exert some authority as a parent. Don't just go along with the flow because your kids want something. You know, it's Parenting 101. You, you have to do what's right for your kids, not necessarily what they want or understand. And, and so that's one thing. And another thing I would throw in, and this is not necessarily, this is more kind of like a theological opinion I can't give you a proof text on this, so you can take this with a grain of salt. I would encourage parents to wait until their children have been baptized as believers before taking communion. And again, I can't give you a proof text on that, but you know, baptism is like the initial rite of conversion. It, it's the initial ceremony. And then communion is kind of the following, continuing ceremony. You do the first one once, the other one you do repeatedly. So, you know, kind of like theologically, logically, one follows the other. But again, I can't give you a verse that says do it that way. So I, I leave that to your conscience. I leave that to your discretion as parents. It's, it's something to consider. Um, but that is what communion should be. All right, so first of all, the past thing, it's a memorial, a commemoration that Jesus died for us. Uh, but there's also a present element. It's also a present communion with the living Christ. Because Jesus died, but he didn't stay in the tomb. The Lord is risen. And so we commune with him. He's present with us spiritually. You know, I said earlier that the, the elements do not literally become the body and blood of Jesus. But you know, that doesn't mean Jesus isn't here. Christ is here with His people. He's present with us through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
uh, says in 1 Corinthians that the Lord's table is a fellowship, a koinonia with Christ. And so He's here spiritually through the Holy Spirit, ministering to us and feeding us. And so that's why it's called communion. Because we commune with God. Look, it's right here in the text. Verse 20. In the same way, after the supper, He took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood, which is poured out for you. Now, what's a covenant? A covenant is when two people who are unrelated enter into an agreement with one another before God in which they form a familial bond. And so God entered into a covenant with Israel and He became, in a sense, Israel's husband and they became His wife. When, when you're married, you enter into a covenant and two people who are unrelated now become family through a covenant commitment. And what do you do after you make the covenant at the wedding? You go to the reception and you eat! Very important. There's a covenant meal. And when, when God brought Israel out of Egypt and He brought him out of slavery and He came through the Red Sea, He didn't just say, okay, well listen, you guys are free now. So, you know, have fun. Go be a nation. Do whatever you want. You know, I did my part. I saved you out of Egypt not so long. And I'm gonna... No. He brought them to Mount Sinai. He said, I'm going to be your God and you are going to be my people. And He entered into a covenant with Israel. And He got the Ten Commandments. You know how you do wedding vows in a wedding? The Ten Commandments are like the wedding vows. They're the, the commitment that you make to each other. They're the commitment Israel made to God. And there was a blood sacrifice. There was covenant blood that was shed. And there was a covenant meal. Go back to the book of Exodus. Moses and the 70 elders of Israel, they went up on the mountain. They saw God. They communed with Him. And what did they do? They ate with Him. Because when you make a covenant, you eat together. And so Passover is a covenant meal. This is our covenant meal. We are members of the new covenant. The old covenant under Moses was broken. Israel broke the covenant, didn't keep the vows, committed spiritual adultery, so to speak, by worshiping other gods. And so God has made a new covenant and a new people composed of both Jew and Gentile, united in Christ. And so in Christ, we, the new Israel, the church, come and celebrate this new covenant meal as we celebrate Jesus, our Passover lamb who was sacrificed, and His blood which is over the doorframe of our house. And, and so we come and celebrate this covenant meal together. It's a communal meal that we share. And so this should also not just be a time of past remembrance, it should be a time of present communion. It's a time when we can sit down with Jesus and worship Him. And like I said, you know, we get so busy in life, we're doing so many things, and how wonderful it is to have this time where we gather as a church. We put television and schedules and work and you know all the stuff we do on hold. And we say we are going to create a space where we together meet in covenant community with our Lord. So that's what this is. It's a present communion with Christ and with one another. This is a communal meal. Isn't that interesting? Communion is not something you do in private. It's not like you put the kids to bed at night you're like, I haven't hung out with God today. I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to, you know, pray. And I'm going to have a little communion by myself. I'm going to break out some saltines and get some Welches or whatever, you know. And I'm going to have a little communion right here. Mm-hmm. All right, done. You don't do that. You do it together as a community. It's a, it's a communal covenant that we entered into as a local church. And so it's a past remembrance. It's a present communion but you know there's a future element too. It's also a future hope that Christ is coming again. And so don't you see the whole Gospel 
is wrapped up in this little simple meal. The past crucifixion, the present risen presence of Christ, and His future coming again. Because communion is also a forward look. It's also a looking ahead to the coming of Christ. And you know, the Jewish Passover is a forward look too. So some of you have been to Jewish Passovers. There's all these chairs around the table where everyone sits, and there's one empty chair. Right? Who's the empty chair for? Elijah. And at a certain point in the Passover, somebody gets up, and they go over to the door, and they open the door for Elijah. Now, what is that all about? It's an expression of hope. Because in the Old Testament book of Malachi, it says that before the Messiah comes, the prophet Elijah will be his forerunner, who, who we know is John the Baptist, of course, and Jesus was the Messiah. But there's that hope that the Messiah is going to come, that Elijah is going to come through the door. And so it's a hope in the Messiah, and the door is open. There's a forward look. Jesus also gives us a forward look. Look at verse uh, 15 again. He said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. There's going to be a fuller experience of God's presence. Verse 17, after taking the cup, this would be one of the earlier cups in the meal, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So there's a hope that Christ is coming again. Uh, that Christ is returning. And so we as Christians, it's not just a past and a present, but it's a future proclamation. And I think by observing communion in this way, we're in a sense pushing back against the world. You know, we're pushing back against poverty and racism and war and genocide and injustice and AIDS and evil in the world. And we're saying, this is not how it's always going to be. Christ is coming back. His kingdom will be established. And so we stand in hope when we do that simple thing of taking these elements that Christ's kingdom is coming. And it's also a personal thing because we all have garbage going on in our lives to different degrees. We have illnesses in our families. And we have financial difficulties and our marriages are struggling. And, and it's so much brokenness in our lives. Yeah, that's the one thing I've learned as a pastor. Is, you know, people come to me and they say, well, you know, pastor, I've got to share something with you and this may surprise you. I'm not surprised anymore. You know, I dare you to try to shock me with anything. I, I mean, I've only been a pastor like 10 years. I've heard it all. And, and what I realize is everybody, to some degree or another, has junk in their lives. But at communion we come with all of our brokenness and all of our issues and we say, Jesus, I believe that this is not the final word. That your kingdom is the final word. And so it's a, a statement of, of hope. It, communion is a proclamation of the Lord's death until He comes. And so we stand confidently and we say, Christ is going to return. And so you have this funny alloy of emotions in communion, don't you? It's really weird. It's somber but it's also triumphant and hopeful. You, know, you want to cry sometimes in communion, but you also want to jump up and down and, and yell and laugh. You know, there's a part of me during communion that just wants to lay on the floor on my face, humbled before God. And there's another part of me that wants to stand up on the, the pews and, you know, woo you know, get those little horns, you know, celebrate because Christ is coming. And so it's, it's a weird... It's a very complex thing. 
But like I said, the whole gospel is here, and it's all summarized in the simple acts of taking the bread and, and the juice and remembering what Christ did, communing with him and proclaiming his death until he comes. I was at a church, and I may have shared this with you before, but I was at a church once, and big church, big, you know, musical program, big screens on the walls with, you know, projection behind them. This, you know, this huge sanctuary, very high-tech, very cutting-edge and all that. And, and I was like, wow, look, you know, look at this church, the amazing things they can do. But then I was reading the bulletin. I was kind of going through it. And, and as I was reading there, I saw that, that you could take communion in that church, but it wasn't in the worship services. It was in a back room on the second floor for anyone who felt they wanted to do that for themselves. And I was like, what? <laughs> Where did that come from? Not celebrating communion as a church? You know, communion is not optional for Christians. This is not an add-on. Jesus told us to be baptized, and he told us to take the Lord's Supper until he comes. And there's reasons why he wants us to do this. And even though we do practice it in our services, could it be that sometimes we have the same attitude as that church and, and we see the communion table, we're like, oh, this is communion Sunday. Okay, so that means church is like 15 minutes longer today. Um, okay, maybe I should leave now because I really need to get home and start lunch. Or I want to go to the beach. I'm like, people, <laughs> this is not optional. And who would want it to be optional? It's so wonderful, too, to come and to commune with our Lord. And so may, may you enter the richness of communion now as we look back and remember what Christ has done for us, that we are saved not by good works, not by religiosity, but by His blood alone. And may we have a present communion with the Lord. And may we also look forward to the future when the kingdom of God will come and stand in confidence against all that is wrong in this world and all that is wrong in ourselves, knowing that someday Christ will reign in glory. And so to prepare our hearts for communion, there's a, a communion prayer that I'd like us to pray together. It's actually in your bulletin. If you could look in your bulletin and find it. This is an old Puritan prayer.